Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, your word is filled with both law and gospel, with solemn warnings and precious promises. And I admit that it is often easier for us to give attention to those precious promises, to try to avoid the solemn warnings. And yet, Lord, as the New Testament teaches us, these things that we're reading here in the Old Testament were written for our benefit, so we might learn from them. So, Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, open our eyes and our ears that we might see and hear and finally discern and walk in your ways. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. This week, the streaming service Netflix, they dropped the first episodes of the final season of their hit show, The Crown. And millions of people, the Landrys included, have enjoyed this series about the British monarchy from Elizabeth's early days, not even yet uh, crowned as queen, all the way now to the story of the death of Princess Diana and this newest generation. I'll admit that I'm one of those Americans that probably every four years or so when presidential elections come around... I wonder if we promised really hard to never run away again, if maybe they would take us back. (laughs) You get a little frustrated by the dysfunction of our republic. But I think this desire for a king isn't just a reaction to current candidates for president. The desire for a king is an ancient spiritual longing that even secular people can't quite escape from. It's why the story of a king dominates our myths and our fairy tales. Legends of good and faithful kings who ruled with justice, but also stories of tragedy and despair when the king is gone. In English-speaking Western culture, it's the stories of Camelot, and King Arthur, or excuse me, and Robin Hood. 
It's the story that Tolkien tells. You can remember his famous line, the hands of the king are the hands of a healer, and so shall the rightful king be known. This longing for a king, one author says, is a memory trace of God, the great king, looking for God even as maybe people who aren't religious, who aren't Christian, don't know quite how to define it. This morning, we're going to look at kingship. We're going to ask ourselves two questions. First, what kind of king does Israel want here in 1 Samuel chapter 8? And then secondly, what kind of king does Israel actually need? What kind of king did they want But what kind of king do they need? And of course, as we ask these questions, these aren't just interesting historical anecdotes, are they? Because you and I are in much the same place as we'll discover this morning. So first, what kind of king does Israel want? Well, they define it for us in verses 5 and 20. They tell Samuel, give us a king like all the other nations around us. We want a king like everyone else that we can see around us. Now what's fascinating is that in the political land theology of the great powers that surrounded ancient Israel, the king wasn't just a political person. The king was considered to be a god, or maybe the son of a god or some semi-divine person who had been invested with the authority of the gods. The people of these other nations around Israel didn't wake up one day and weigh the relative merits of monarchy versus democracy. No, kingship was woven into the very fabric of the cosmos itself. If you wanted to be rightly related to the divine being that you worshipped, you had to be rightly related to the king who served as an intermediary. So when the people of Israel demand a king like all the other nations, this is as much a religious decision as it is a political decision. This is why in verse 7, God assures Samuel, buddy, it's okay. The people haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. And in verse 8, he says, Samuel, this thing that's happening where they want a new king, it's part of an old story that stretches all the way back to the Exodus where the people of Israel would sin against me. They would reject me as their God. They would go and serve other gods. The people of Israel don't just want a new political leader. They want a new God. Why? What's driving this desire for a new king, a new God? It's because they're afraid. Look at the end of verse 20. We need a king to go out before us and fight our battles. A king to go out before us and fight our battles. Now, if you've been with us over the last couple of weeks as we've worked our way through 1 Samuel, you might be scratching your head a little bit here. 
Isn't that exactly what God has been doing for Israel? For Samuel chapter 7, he went out before them and he defeated the Philistines without them. And the only thing that Israel had to do was run after the Philistines who were running away from them. We read in verse 13 of chapter 7 that because God had gone out to war on behalf of his people, the Philistines never entered the land of Israel again. And in chapter 7, verse 14, we read that there was peace with the Amorites, another one of the ancient enemies of Israel. God had been going out before them. God had been fighting their battles. He's shown himself to be faithful generation after generation. Why is Israel doubting his faithfulness now? Things are about to change. Samuel is old. He's the only political leader that most of the people in Israel had probably known. He had been faithful. But he's old and he's getting ready to die. And his sons aren't in a place to succeed him. And so the people are surveying their situation and saying, wait, what's going to happen next? Things are getting ready to change. We stand at the precipice of the unknown. We don't know what's going to happen after you die. And their fear leads to faithlessness. And their faithlessness leads to idolatry. They want a king. Really, they want a god. They want a god like all the other nations. I think already we can see a lesson from 1 Samuel chapter 8. At the heart of the political structure that is common to humankind, at the heart of our politics is an existential urge for security. It plays on our fears. We are not much better or different than these ancient Israelites. Almost every election cycle, we ask the same questions. Who will protect us? Who will go out before us and fight our battles? It's why we invest our human leaders with near divine properties. This candidate, he or she can see things that nobody else can see. This candidate can do things that nobody else can do. It's why in modern politics, it's no longer about the policies. It's about a person. We often will look and think, even if we don't say it out, out loud, without them, our nation is lost. But with them, we'll be safe. Fear drives this. And this is why our politicians, who are no dummies, it's why they invest so much in marketing the media of fear. 
What media of fear do you consume? What's on in your living rooms when you're not really thinking about anything else? What voices sound in your cars? What do you doom scroll through on Twitter? The more fearful we are, the more we will treat politics like a zero-sum game. The world is at risk. The nation is at risk. I am at risk unless that person leads me, goes out before me to fight my battles. Here we need to hear and heed the solemn warning of Samuel. In verses 10 through 18, he tells Israel what kind of king they're going to end up choosing. And over and over in Samuel's description, the same word is, is repeated. It's like a hammer blow to the soul. He's going to take. He's going to take. He's going to take. The king they choose will take their best land. The king will take their grain and their wine. He will take their servants, their livestock, their flocks. And to top it all off, Samuel says in verse 17, and you shall be his slaves. After he takes everything you own, he's going to take you. You'd think that people would react and respond with fear, with horror. I can't believe that we thought that this was a good idea. Verse 19, they don't care. They demand it. The people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. They said, no! But there shall be a king over us. Having rejected God as their king, they inexplicably choose tyranny. And this is the great lie. It's the lie that stretches all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Satan wants us to believe that submission to God is a threat. It's a threat to our well-being. It's a threat to our enjoyment of life. It's a threat to our control. But over and over, we see that submission to the rule of God is the definition of perfect freedom. It's when we reject God's rule. That's when we fall under the tyranny of so many other masters. The sad thing is, is we put our hands out willingly for them to lead us away. The nations around Israel, they believed that their kings were gods. Only the Bible made the bold declaration that God was the king. But the people of God don't want God as their king. And the sad history of Israel is that they will make that choice again and again and again 
until one day, with pure hatred, they scream out, we have no king but Caesar. This desire for a king, it's, it's not sin in and of itself. If you remember back to our very first couple of weeks in the book of 1 Samuel, Hannah, Samuel's mother, she prays, she celebrates, she prophesies in her prayer in chapter 2, verse 10, asking that God would give strength to his king. But of course, there was no king in the land at that time. So with prophetic insight, she knows that a king is coming. And we can stretch back even farther from her to Moses. Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 17. He knew the day would come with this exact language. The day will come when you want a king like all the nations around you. What kind of king does Moses say Israel needs? If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 17, it says that this king needs to reflect the character of God. And in that way, it'll be a king that is the exact opposite of what Samuel here describes. Moses says he should not acquire for himself, another word for that is take, he should not take for himself Wives, horses, wealth, the very things that Samuel says this king is going to take. He was supposed to be a humble servant of God. He was supposed to be a servant toward the people. He was to rule Israel in a loving and sacrificial way. He was to be gracious to his people in the same way that God was gracious to his people. Now, the closest that Israel ever gets to that kind of king is David. Next year, when we come back and pick up the story of 1 Samuel here at chapter 9, we'll read about Saul, the first king of Israel, who gives way to King David. But even good King David, he only rules for 40 years before he gives his kingdom to his son Solomon. And as good as David is, he fails spectacularly to live up to Moses' ideal. Even he can't be the final fulfillment of Hannah's prayer. But one day, a band of astrologers and court magicians from the east showed up in Jerusalem and they asked, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And when that baby grew up, he began his public ministry with these words from Mark chapter 1. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. And toward the end of his life, as Jesus rode triumphantly into Jerusalem, the words of the prophet were fulfilled. Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. What kind of king was King Jesus? He wasn't the king that's described for us here in 1 Samuel chapter 8, a king who only took. No, everything about Jesus' life and ministry 
was gift. He gave over and over and over. Matthew chapter 20, the Son of Man came not to serve or to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. John chapter 10, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Matthew chapter 11, come to me, you are, who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let me close with this question. Do you bow the knee to King Jesus? Notice what I didn't ask. I didn't ask if you believe that he's the king. I didn't ask if you choose him as your king. He is the king whether you acknowledge it or not. One day, even under duress, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is the king. So let me ask you, today is not yet that day. Do you bow the knee to him? Do you acknowledge his rule and authority over your life? If you do, then no matter where you are from or where you live, you in essence carry two passports. One for where your earthly citizenship is. We have folks in our congregation who carry passports from Germany, from Brazil, Chile, Mexico. We also have people that were born here in the U.S. and only carry a, a USA passport. But if you belong to Jesus, never forget that you are dual citizens. In the words of Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, don't forget that your citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. But here's our problem. We sometimes get tired of waiting, don't we? Maybe, like ancient Israel, the things that are happening around us foretell destruction ahead. A challenging season of life. Uncertainty fills our screens. And in those moments when we are afraid, when we are frustrated, when we're filled with unbelief and doubt, we're in danger of bowing the knee to a different king. Now, this isn't just about politics, although I think there are more lessons to be drawn here than many of us would be comfortable with. No, we don't have to find a strong man or woman to line up behind. There are plenty of imitation kings that are vying for our attention and worship. When you're afraid and someone or something offers you comfort, control, power, pleasure, that's a toxic combination. But of course, those are the kings of the nations around us. That's who your friends and family members who don't belong to Jesus, that's what they're pursuing. That's who they worship. 
And folks, fear in our own lives tempts us to turn and worship them too. To look for safety and security and pleasure from them. So this morning we need to heed Samuel's solemn warning. Because those kings, there's only one word that will describe their rule in your life. They will take. They will take away from you. They will rob you of life. They will take your joy. They will take your strength. And even as they whisper sweet promises of happiness and comfort, safety and control, you won't even notice the shackles going on. Instead of rejecting God to put these other kings on the throne of our lives, we must confess that God is the king and that his rule leads to our blessing because he gives himself completely to us, even to the point of death on a cross. In his book, The Creedal Imperative, the church historian Carl Truman writes this. In the worship service, as soon as the congregation says, we believe in one God. As soon as they say that, all other pretenders to the divine throne have been put well and truly in their place. Neither sex, nor money, nor power is God. There is only one God. Redeemer, may you and I be his faithful subjects. May we be his witnesses. May we be the ambassadors of his grace, participating in the ministry of reconciliation that he has entrusted to us so that men and women and children might know the freedom of being the children of God. And when you are afraid, when it seems like everything around you is crumbling, when the center cannot hold, when your eye begins to wander and look for a new king, don't ever forget that one day we will join the voices in in heaven that sing out, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, we are weak, and as much as we would like to try to project strength or as much as we are drawn to those who promise us power and control, we confess that so much of it is driven by our fear. So give us boldness, confidence, and bravery, even in the face of uncertainty and disruption, that we might testify to your kingship to Christ's coming again, and to our place as witnesses and ambassadors of that kingdom. 
Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.